All right, let's get started this morning. Glad you can catch up with some folks, enjoy some fellowship. We'll do some more of that afterwards. I want to follow up with uh, just a few thoughts regarding uh, the text from last week at a conversation or two afterwards and thought we could just review some of these thoughts to equip you to to understand that we can go to the scriptures and address some of the questions regarding uh, Peter's closing answer as the people under conviction ask, what should we do with this message about Jesus being the Christ and the Lord? And his answer was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. Why does Peter say repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? Uh, And we touched on that briefly in the sermon, uh, especially drawing on the context, which is always key to our interpretation. Uh, And in the context, Peter's message has been, God has made this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God made him Lord. He's the Christ, Uh, he was sent, God's appointed one, the anointed one, and God has made this Jesus to be Lord. So he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he has poured out the Spirit, he's Lord. And so Peter's point is repent and be baptized, and that baptism stands for something. It represents that person's belief and submission to Jesus as Lord. So he's saying repent and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and this is what the forgiveness of sins comes with. Um, and so I want to I look at this just a little bit more because of a, a false teaching that we would label as baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is the belief, generally, that baptism is necessary for salvation, or to be more precise, according to their teaching, that regeneration, new life, does not occur until a person is baptized in water. So we're talking about actual water baptism, and yet they are linking that very strongly to the actual moment of regeneration, or broadly we could even say salvation. This idea of baptismal regeneration Uh, was most strenuously promoted uh, in the churches that we call churches that are in the Restoration Movement. Now, this Restoration Movement came out of the Second Great Awakening. A little bit of history. We had the First Great Awakening, names like Whitfield, George Whitfield in England, and did some in in the colonies, and then Jonathan Edwards. So we're talking the early 1700s, 1730s, and 40s. Thinking through your history, you know, we're not even to 1775 yet, uh, independence. We're just in the colonial days, uh, the first Great Awakening. The second Great Awakening uh, started in the 1790s and goes through the first half of the 1800s, so a longer period of time, but it, it, it produced a whole lot of unique movements in the religious landscape of what was now the new nation of America. 
And while the first great awakening was strongly Calvinistic, uh, the great preaching of George Whitfield, the great philosophy slash preaching of a Jonathan Edwards, uh, strongly Calvinistic, the second great awakening was probably equally strong in its Arminian tendencies, and by that we mean uh, there was a heavy emphasis on the human effort that brings about salvation. Um, and so uh, a more Arminian approach in the Second Great Awakening. Well, this restoration movement uh, had that name restoration because they were calling for a restoration or a return to the simplicity of non-denominational church as it was in the first century church, the church in Acts that we're studying now. They were saying we should be able to go back to Acts and see what was the basic description of the church. And if we just do that, then we could all get along. So there were a couple tenets of uh, the baptismal regeneration and this restoration movement. And those tenets were primarily ecumenicalism. We should all be able to get along if we just go back to the early church and see what to do. And with that came this other kind of pillar, that being we have no creed, no creed but the Bible. Um, and so those ideas, let's all get together, and we don't need creeds or confessions. We can all just say we believe the Bible. Now, at face value, that, that's not a bad thing. Uh, and this wasn't some heretical movement. It was, it was kind of a genuine approach to, we just want to go back to the good old days. Uh, so no creed but the Bible became their mantra. Uh, but ironically, the restoration movement, after their efforts to unite so much of the Protestant uh, denominations and say that we have no creed, we're just going to look at the Bible uh, this restoration movement spawned multiple divisions. Uh, they just kept splitting one from the other because of different doctrinal nuances. Um, and so the no creed but the Bible, it sounds good, um, but it, it generally doesn't hold water because when we say creed, we're not saying we have the Bible plus creeds. We're simply saying creeds and confessions help us articulate what we mean when we say we believe in Jesus or uh, there is a trinity, or this is what justification is. Um, creeds aren't Bible. They're just unfolding. They're articulating how the Bible, in, in its nuance, defines these crucial matters regarding our salvation. Now, the main denominations we see today are the Church of Christ and the Christian Church, or the Disciples of Christ, there are the two major denominations that we still have that began as this restoration movement. Protestant evangelical churches that tried to get back to the original Church of Acts in a simplicity, non-denominationalism, and yet eventually ended up very much in denominational uh, creedal positions after all. So the restoration movement, Second Great Awakening, and now even today, we still see a lot of these churches around. One of their teachings uh, is this idea that salvation comes, uh, regeneration happens when you finally are baptized in water. 
there's generally a four-part formula for how salvation is received. Uh, they believe that a person must believe, they must repent, they must confess Jesus as Lord, and they must be water baptized. Um, and that's, you know, not unbiblical. They, they base this on Bible passages. Acts 16, the apostles respond to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Luke 13, repent or you will all likewise perish. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And then this Acts 2, 38 text where baptism is linked with repentance for salvation. So a little bit of splitting of hairs here, but it helps us to be careful in using our label of heresy. Uh, Those who contend for baptismal regeneration, this four-part formula, belief, repentance, confession, baptism, they do not view these actions as meritorious or as earning salvation. So repenting, confessing, believing, baptizing, uh, they don't make a person worthy of saving. Rather, the official view is that faith, repentance, confession, and baptism are works of obedience, things that a person must do for God to grant salvation. So they would approach the doing just as we approach faith. We're not saying that if you have faith, now you're worthy of saving. You've earned your salvation by faith. That's not how we we would say it. We don't approach the action of trusting as meritorious. Um, So they, they simply say that this is the process by which God has said salvation comes. So you, you do these works of obedience, as they call them. And while the standard Protestant understanding is that faith is the one thing God requires before salvation is granted, they're simply saying that there are four things that are required before salvation is granted. But there's a danger to adding anything to faith. Uh, that danger is real. And in any theological nuance that would, that would say yes, but, and add something else to the simplicity of faith, um, there's danger there, and it has consequences for the baptismal regeneration folks. Um, because in the baptismal regeneration understanding where all these things are necessary, you have to do these things before new life occurs, um, the emphasis on what we need to do in almost every worldview that calls you to do something, uh, it, it comes with the consequence that you can undo it. Meaning, with baptismal regeneration and other works of doing, um, these churches do not have a confidence in their eternal security. Though God promises eternal life, if you believe, that eternal life can be lost. It can slip through your fingers. Um, they're not confident in God's promise of salvation. Uh, In their language, the new heart that you receive in baptism can be lost by impenitence or a stubbornness to repent of sin. If you're unrepentant over certain sin following your baptism, you could lose 
that salvation that you thought you had. And that, that it, you just study any religion that calls us to do anything uh, and the consequence of that understanding, that compromise of, of faith alone means that in my trying to accomplish, I could fail in that accomplishment or thinking I had arrived and maybe having been declared as arrived, I could undo what I did to get to that position. Um, Thus, that fickleness of knowing whether or not I'm going to heaven. Roy? All of these seem to be built on a presupposition that I'm doing it anyway. If faith is a gift of God, if repentance is something he grants, both of those tied together, we can make an action, but unless it's really a God-sourced thing, it's futile anyway. Gary was just telling me about a, a fellow and his wife. Uh, she had some health issues in mid-70s. Both of them professed Christ for years, and now she's bitter at God and walking away from him. I would contend that there is a high likelihood that whatever faith was there was hers and not a gift from God. And tares are among us. We may be tares, fully convinced that we know Jesus, but the point being, the faith and repentance are both coming from God, and these others are, are leaning very hard on the human effort. Right, and to be fair, in the, in the original days of this movement, to go to the scriptures and see what the church was and keep it simple, um, they, they were... They were not adding anything to um, what was required for salvation. Uh, but as they tried to get more specific about what they believed and, and started to articulate it in these ways, um, it, it, it definitely ends up as, yes, you have to believe, but even pulling baptism into this equation becomes problematic. And again, to your point, Roy, um, in, in labeling the first great awakening as Calvinistic and the second as more Arminian, um, it, the, that history matters. And, and out of this second great awakening came a lot of Bible, a lot of, a lot of revivalism. Uh, this was the era of, of Charles Finney and, and, and hellfire and brimstone preaching, so much so that there were many converts, but there were also... Uh, a lot of folks that just heard this and heard this and heard this and kind of went along for the ride. And so much of New York became known as the burnt over district where this hellfire preaching had just kept sweeping through the region and like we're burned over, we're done, we've heard it, you know, enough. Um, For 50 years of this awakening, there was a lot of Bible, but it, it wasn't always as anchored in the sovereignty of God and saving sinners as we would have liked it to be. And so it, it had consequences. And one of them was this emphasis on what we do to cooperate with God in our salvation. And that was a generally a new approach in evangelical uh, Protestantism in the colonies that uh, from the first great awakening you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, he's dangling you over hell and only by his mercy will he draw you to himself versus the second great awakening, uh, which was very much, you know, God wants to save, but as long as you do this, you know, and that became the foundation for the revivalism 
the whole altar call invitation system, uh, very much rooted in um, Bible, but not careful uh, doctrine from the Bible. So I wouldn't argue that revival and preaching for it and giving an altar call, an invitation is unbiblical. I, I would simply say it needs to be rooted in sound doctrine so that people know what they're doing if you were going to implement those kinds of practices. Because when we look at baptismal regeneration in their four tenets, faith, repentance, confession, baptism, we would go to the scriptures and find all four of those ideas. Faith is required for salvation. Uh, We would say as much, but to Roy's point, we would try to be more careful in our articulation of that. So we say in our doctrinal statement, we believe that faith is a gift of God's grace whereby the repentant sinner abandons all self-reliance and works of self-righteousness and trusts solely and completely in the substitutionary work of Christ's righteous life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection. Uh, Faith is required for salvation. So when we look at their first tenant of the four, we say, yes, that's true. We would agree. Repentance, understood biblically, is required for salvation. Again, in our doctrinal statement, we say we believe that repentance is a gift of God's grace, whereby the Spirit convicts of sin and enables the sinner who was dead in trespasses and sins to choose freely to turn from evil and the ruin of their sin in godly sorrow in order to live in righteousness. This repentance is this turning, but when we think of repentance being a turning, and we already said faith was a turning to trust in Christ, we realize that repentance and faith are two sides of one coin. Um, If we were putting this coin into a vending machine, it wouldn't matter which side you were talking about, that coin is going to get what you're paying for, so to speak. Um, in, In our salvation, we were once, as sinners, inclined only to sin. That was the result of the fall. Adam and Eve, we could almost think of them as being neutral, um, almost more so God-inclined. Sin fractures that relationship with God, and now our heart is only inclined to evil, so that the scriptures would tell us in Genesis, every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. The incline or the decline steered us to sin. So the Psalms, then echoed in Romans, says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. No one is naturally leaning towards, you know, I think I want to figure out what God has to say. That no, no sinner does that. So once we understand that, then we realize that any turn away from sin is supernatural, that sinners don't do that. Sin is what they do. It's who they are. So to turn from sin is actually a turning toward Christ. The moment you're turning, it's both away from sin and to Jesus. So repentance and faith need to be seen together even though the Bible is comfortable at times saying one or the other is what is required for salvation. Peter in Acts 2 there, when they say, what shall we do? He never mentions belief. And we would think, 
How did he drop the ball in this crucial moment? But then we get to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, and they never tell him to repent of sin because they're using in that moment what, which aspect of this turning is most crucial. Peter's talking to people who he's just condemned for crucifying Jesus in their hatred and in their rebellion, in their refusal of Jesus as Lord. And so he's telling them, repent, turn from what I just told you you did. Now, we could argue that when he says be baptized, he is telling them to trust, to believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Philippian jailer, he just can't figure out what these guys are all about. Like, why are you still here? Why didn't you run away and escape when the earthquake breaks the jail down? What do I have to do to to be saved? And, And they just say, it's simple, just believe. You don't have to do anything. You just believe. But in that belief is repentance because when we, when we biblically examine what it is to believe or to trust, it is the turning from sin and a turning to Jesus. So we would agree repentance is necessary for salvation, but we don't see that competing with faith or or. It's one or the other, it's, it's both together. They, they form for us another word that we often use, conversion, uh, that change, that transformation that was taking place as we turned from sin to faith in Christ. Confession is their third element in their series of four, but understood biblically, we would say this, this is an expression of a faith. So in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that this is so, you will be saved. Well, that's not an additional element to repentance and faith. It's not that somebody could say, I'm not going to repent or believe in Jesus. I'm just going to confess him as Lord. That's not the biblical definition of what's going on there in Romans 10. That confession of faith and believing in your heart is is communicating something. It's saying that a confession of the mouth is rooted in a heart that is turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. Again, I, I feel like the baptismal regeneration position was rooted in Scripture, but it just failed to nuance all that the Bible says about this incredible experience of salvation. Theologians for centuries have used a Latin phrase, the ordo salutis, to describe the order of salvation. And they emphasize it's not a chronological order per se as much as it is a logical order. These are things that must happen, and because our minds can only think in a time concept, we write them in this order of steps. And that nuances for us so much of Scripture that may address different parts of what we call salvation, repentance or faith. But what about an effectual call? What does it mean when Peter says that this promise of Salvation and the giving of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
Like, where does that fit in? Where does the call of God fit into repentance and faith? Where does John 3 come to play when when Nicodemus is told the the spirit is going to blow like the wind that you can't see, and that's essential for being born again? And then what is born again? So the Bible uses all kinds of expressions, and then we get into justification, sanctification. When does that happen? Uh, And what is adoption? And that's another whole part, but it's still salvation. All this factors into this big thing called the gospel, the good news, salvation in Jesus Christ. We're looking at faith, repentance, confession, and then there's this element of baptism. That one generally isn't in the ordo salutis. That doesn't have to do with our salvation, and yet it got pulled into uh, this idea of what it means to be a Christian uh, back there in the Second Great Awakening, and the, and the waters suddenly got muddied. Uh, and, and this wasn't careful theology unfolding. Uh, when they added water baptism, which had, which had long been a tenant of Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelicalism in the camp specifically of those baptizing believers. Um, and this strikes it really the big issue uh, when you hear uh, of baptismal regeneration or questions even from our text of, well, do I have to be baptized to be saved? The key question is, what is required to be saved? What do you have to do in this life before you die in order to go to heaven? And when you really get to answering that question, you're just not going to be able to draw water baptism as an identification with Christ into that necessary um, command for salvation. So the primary problem with this baptismal regeneration viewpoint is that there are just too many Bible passages that clearly and explicitly declare that faith, defined as faith with repentance, that faith is the only requirement for salvation. And just a couple of familiar ones. Obviously, most familiar would be John 3.16. You're just not told to repent, confess, and you're certainly not told, or is it even implied that you would be baptized? Uh, what we're told there is that God, by the giving of his son, made a way for salvation, and you receive that gift of God by faith to the believing ones. It's a participle there. The believing ones will have eternal life. Um, Acts 16.31, what must I do to be saved? Believe, and you will be saved. Uh, Tying it together, it's that instantaneous work of God that by, in faith comes the promise of God that you're saved. Not believe and then be baptized and then you will receive salvation. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So the Bible's clear that we're saved by faith alone. That's always been the case. Go back to the Old Testament. Abraham is saved by faith. He believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. Old Testament and New Testament, same story. We're saved by faith. Throughout the Bible, people have been being saved without being baptized. 
while the Jews had a form of baptism for proselytes, for Gentiles that were added to the Jewish community, um, we don't think of Old Testament saints as being baptized to identify with Christ. Um, And yet we don't question whether or not they are part of uh, God's people in heaven. Uh, The thief on the cross is often a a key discussion that has to be viewed by the baptismal regeneration camp as as an unusual exception. It's just that dying before you could be baptized is not exceptional in the life of humanity. Um, So we have to be careful there that we don't take all these people who have made a profession of faith in Christ and yet didn't make it to water baptism because they're in a nursing home, because they're on a battlefield, because they were on a warship in World War II and it got sunk and they died and they were never baptized. What do we do with people like that if we believe baptism has to occur before God grants salvation? Um, So just a look at the scriptures reveals to us that people were saved and declared as such before they were baptized. An interesting dilemma for baptismal regeneration is Cornelius in Acts 10, who we're told was saved, and yet he hadn't been physically water baptized yet. So just remember, baptism is this testimony of our faith, yes. It's a picture of the burial and resurrection of Christ, yes. Uh, And it's this declaration to all that I'm putting faith in Jesus as Lord. He was God's provision of salvation, and he is Lord. Baptism does not save us any more than in other camps. The emphasis was, you know, walking the aisle or praying the prayer. Um, Those things aren't troublesome in and of themselves unless we say that's somehow a part of the process of salvation. We are saved when we turn in trusting faith to Jesus as the answer for our sin problem. If baptism were required for salvation, then no one could be saved without another party present. Nobody in any camp recognizes a self-baptism. You can't just dunk yourself, you know, bend your knees and go under. Um, So it always has to be with someone else, which is that same kind of dilemma of how does this work in some cases. Um, You know, I can remember having conversations in college before just kind of settling on some of these core Bible issues, the sovereignty of God and salvation, the gift of repentance of faith. And the question would be, in the system that I kind of grew up in, which would often have an altar call, and and you were saved when you came and prayed and and said the prayer, um, what would happen if, you know, during the invitation, someone raised their hand saying, I want to be saved, and had a heart attack before they got out of the aisle and came down to the front, would that person go to heaven if they never confessed with their mouth the Lord Jesus and prayed the sinner's prayer? Um, And the debate raged um, because some would say, no, the Bible says they have to repent. And and then you stop and think, wait a minute. If faith is a simple requirement and it's a gift of God, Wouldn't we say that when that guy was sitting in that back seat somewhere and was hearing God's word preached and his heart was quickened, 
and he was awakened to the treasure that Christ is as Savior and Lord, in that moment, he was saved. He was, his heart was believing, and now it was just a matter of some formality and, and maybe a little quick discipleship to inform him that what, what is going on is you're turning from your sin and you're trusting in Christ. And maybe he would articulate that in some form of a prayer, but has every person that is going to go to heaven actually prayed the words, Jesus, forgive me of my sins and take me to heaven when I die and I believe in you as Savior and Lord? Probably not. There was probably some heretical stuff that was uttered by new converts, thinking that that was what they were supposed to say or do, and it just didn't matter because they were alive in Christ and turning from their life of sin and wanting what God said he was giving. And with some discipleship, they learned everything that that meant. And in hindsight, sometimes years later, you can look back and say, oh, that's what happened back then. Uh, it was kind of muddy and foggy then, but I've, I've come to understand what was going on in that whole situation. So the guy that has a heart attack and doesn't make it up to the altar, you know, for the altar call, a soldier that's converted in some foxhole and then takes a bullet and dies. These aren't dilemmas for us. Like, uh, the Bible is clear. You only have to trust in Christ for salvation and you will be saved. Now, we know what else that means and we know what goes on there. And yet, it really is that simple. There is a childlike simplicity to this faith that God says is the requirement for our salvation. So when we think of baptismal regeneration, we, we just have to realize there's a point in time when we express this faith. Now that faith is a gift of God. We learn that. We see that in Scripture. But in that moment, you may not know that. You just know I don't want this life anymore. I want what God is promising. And that wanting is what God is saying is the heart of one who is saved. Uh, The baptismal regeneration, it's rooted in Scripture, so they're going to take you to Bible verses, but it's just not carefully dividing the Word of God to make sure we understand exactly what is being said. Um. Just a few more nuts and bolts. Uh, Look at this Acts 2 text uh, with me once more. Speaking of being careful and recognizing nuance in interpreting Scripture, when we get to Acts 2.38, so much of the argument is context. I would start there, and, and I don't need what I'm about to tell you to to make the biblical case for why this baptism isn't a saving baptism. I think the context does that for us. However, diving deeper helps us realize there's just no way you you can ring out of this text this meaning that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, This little word for in the Greek, like a lot of prepositions, usually has a couple of English prepositions that help us think of it. 
So for could mean in order to get. Um, and, and in English it does. Um, so you could, or you know, I, I could buy something at the store and I'll, I'll tell Evan, uh, you need to give me $5 for that soccer ball that I bought you. Um, so he has to give me the $5 in order to get the ball. That's what it was for. Um, but that meaning for here in the text leads us to this thought that being baptized saves. Be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. If we just take our English understanding of for in order to get, then we're repenting and being baptized in order to get forgiveness of sins. But even in English, this idea of for breaks down. If I were to say to you, take two aspirin for a headache. Well, you don't take two aspirin in order to get a headache, right? No, it clearly means take two aspirin because you already have a headache. The two aspirin is more the result. It's something that because of this, I've come to this conclusion. Take two aspirin because of or for the headache. Um, so that suddenly the words that I used last week uh, in the sermon were something like, with a view towards. Uh, repent and be baptized with a view towards the forgiveness of sins. If that's what we're talking about, that forgiveness of sins is connected to our repentance and our identif identification with Christ in baptism. So repent and be baptized with this understanding you now have or with a view towards the forgiveness of sins because that's what you asked about. What do we do? You're saying we're guilty of crucifying the Lord. What do we do? Well, with a view towards that sin, repent. And instead of crucifying him as Lord, be baptized and declare he is Lord. And so that, that nuance of is it for in order to get or is it with a view towards uh, becomes important. And while you could look at a lexicon and find this little Greek preposition ace or for, and it would say it could be this, this, or this, that all becomes contingent on the text. We can't just pick one of them and plug it in and say this is what it means when it sends us down different paths, especially in our English language. Uh, John the Baptist would use this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, a baptism for repentance. Well, that's how John's baptism was categorized, and it's the same preposition, the same kind of format gram grammatically that we have here in Acts 2. John wasn't saying be baptized in order to get repentance. No, he was saying be baptized if you are passionate about repentance, because that's why the Messiah is coming, to bring perfect righteousness. So identify with that need for righteousness with this baptism that has a view towards repentance. Jesus would use the same grammatical format when he said of the people of Nineveh in Matthew 12, they repented for the preaching of Jonah. They didn't repent in order to get Jonah's preaching. They repented with a view towards his preaching. So it's exactly the opposite. 
uh, as what we would think of in our English use of for. So when we come to Acts 2 and somebody wants to say, well, look here, it says to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So you have to be baptized to get forgiveness. We would say, I know the English looks troubling, but it's exactly the opposite. Because of forgiveness of sins, be baptized, identify with Christ. With a view towards forgiveness, if that's what we're talking about, then repent and identify with Jesus as Lord. So it's, that's technical. Context is not. Context is clear. The message is all about Jesus as Lord and you crucified him. What do we do? Repent of that sin and identify with Jesus as Lord. Be baptized. That's how you'll know you've been rescued from the sin that you've committed. So just a few texts to help us walk through this baptismal regeneration. Any, any questions you have there? Any history in your denominationalism that could come to bear on this conversation? Anybody ever encounter this argument before? I never really did. I never grew up around anybody that talked about salvation being necessary for, or baptism being necessary for salvation. Um, but it was more in college when you'd hear of technical terms, baptismal regeneration, and I thought that meant maybe just Catholics or something. But no, there, there are those who will say they are Protestant, evangelical, that want to pull in baptism, and it won't sound like blatant heresy works salvation but it will come with some of the same trappings if we're not careful to articulate what baptism is as opposed to what faith does. Roy? Um, back to your talking about where this came from in the 1790 through the 1800s. In the early 1900s, uh, Louis Sverry Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, would have been heavily influenced by this teaching, and he wrote a book called salvation, and he was arguing against repentance being a factor in salvation because that would be a work added to faith, and he was arguing through that vein, but he had the same infection believing that faith was a self, uh, self-actuating thing. Yes. Um what some have called like a third Great Awakening would have been those early 1900s and a lot of the revival that was taking place there, the Billy Sundays and such. Um, Schaefer's arguments became crucial in MacArthur's book in the 80s, The Gospel According to Jesus, and the whole conversation of lordship salvation. Is Jesus Lord as he saves you or not? Um, so it... These, these conversations are important, and while it sounds like, you know, you're just taking up theological controversies, it really does matter who you say you're turning toward. When you say you've turned from sin to Jesus, who is that Jesus standing there that you're turning to? Who is it you're saying is the one who is fit to rescue you from sin and to make you righteous? Um, so the conversation is important. Um, and it seems like going all the way back to that second great awakening, there was a laziness of theology. Um, obviously, plenty of zeal. And, and a lot of times the charge is those who are 
extremely theological and careful lack the zeal. And sometimes that is true. The great goal of the scripture is to have this burning excitement of the church in Acts that was ready to tell everyone the good news, and yet they were also careful to say that Jesus is who he says he is. You don't get to make him into somebody you want him to be. Um, He is Lord and Christ as God has made him. So theology matters, but in our pursuit of theology, that that should keep the embers burning in us for the zeal. Um, So we're not looking to say which great awakening was right. We're, We're just saying, what are the strengths of all of them? And recognize, you know, some call the, even the Jesus revolution that's kind of in the news now because of the movie coming out, and the, the hippies being saved, a fourth great awakening. Um, it seems like awakenings get easier and easier to label as we go on. Um, the point is, there should be zeal and the compassion of Jesus as he met with the woman at the well or the woman taken in adultery or sitting with publicans and tax collectors in order to share the good news, we should have all those ideas and yet we should have absolute truth and not compromise it. Um, And that, if we're looking at restoration movements, that would be the church in Acts. Carefully unfolding theology and yet with a passion to make Christ known wherever they went. And so... There's much we can learn from these historical thoughts of great awakenings and church movements, and certainly uh, we can learn to be careful. Uh, Whether we're listening to preachers on the radio, reading devotional books, thinking through our ideas of what we've read in the Bible, um, we've got to be discerning and careful to let scriptures uh, always steer uh, our definition of truth. So, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. May it be a light to our path. May it be a compass for us. Um, Even our own thoughts, may they be surrendered to what we can clearly see in your word. And for those passages and places where our minds struggle to understand what you're telling us, we ask that your Holy Spirit would shed light um, and that we would pursue Uh, the hard work of thinking and uh, working to understand what you've shared with us. Uh, Make us faithful students of your word, and as your word dwells in us richly, may we be quick to share uh, truth and good news with those who need to hear it. Uh, Even this week, give us opportunities uh, to recognize that, that we are lighthouses and our light is shining out and helping people see the way, uh, that way that was originally defined as following Jesus. Uh, Make us bold this week to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.